Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday. Thank you so much. I see we have about 20 people on the webinar already. We're going to give it just a couple more minutes um, and uh, uh, wait for a couple more people to join. Uh, just so you know, you guys are all, any, all of the attendees are on mute. So um, you may mute yourself or feel free to uh, talk or, you know, answer the phone or whatever. We realize your guys are very busy and um, you're free to multitask during this webinar. Okay, it's a little after two. I hate for people to be waiting for too long and there's 25 people on. So we're gonna go ahead and start the webinar. Um, I just wanted to give a short um, introduction to our speaker. His name is, he needs no introduction, but his name is Dan Geshwind. He is the Gordon and Virginia McDonald Distinguished Professor of Neurology, Psychiatry and Human Genetics at the USCLA School of Medicine and the Senior Associate Dean and Associate Vice Chancellor of Precision Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Geshwin obtained his MD and his PhD in neurobiology at Yale and completed his internship residency in neurology and his postdoctoral fellowship at UCLA where he joined the faculty in 1997. His lab takes a systems biology approach, integrating genetic, genomic, and bioinformatic approaches with the basic neurobiological investigation and model systems for in the human, in, sorry, systems and human brain with the intention of developing new therapeutics for nervous system disorders for disease altering therapies that are not currently available and that includes autism. Dr. Geshwin is also a strong advocate for data and data sharing. He's provided scientific oversight for the Autism Genetic Resource Exchange or AGREE and is an elected member of the American Academy of Physicians and the National Academy of Medicine. So Dr. Geshwin is also too modest, so I'm gonna gush a little bit here. He is one of the only scientists in the world who's looking at gene transcription in the brains of people with autism across different causes. That is those that have a known genetic factor like DUP15Q syndrome, and those that have what is known as idiopathic autism where there's no identified genetic source, although there's genetic sources, there's just no known uh, one. He is also an enormously respected clinician and he's a known autism expert who leads the Center for Autism Research and Treatment at UCLA. And I know that's a lot, uh, sorry, that's a location where a lot of DUP15Q families receive treatment. He also has an amazing academic pedigree, meaning he's trained dozens, if not hundreds of students who have gone on to their own productive research careers and ended up as sought after clinicians all over the world. We're enormously honored and thankful that he's taking this hour to talk to everyone about what autism looks like in the brain. So before, um, so I also want to, before we get started, I did want to um, share my screen because I wanna show you something. Um, this is your control panel. You can see this on the right-hand side of your screen. Um, what I wanna show you is this chat box here. So right here, I'm kind of pointing it out at the bottom of the, the panel. So because you guys are all muted, and we did this specifically because we, we don't think you should stay silent. We know there's a lot of things going on. So feel free to, to do whatever you need to do in your lives while this webinar is going on. But we have everybody muted, which means we want people to use the chat box. You can type a message here and people can see your question. 
Um, you can click to, instead of entire audience, you can click it to just the, the organizer, which is me. I won't mention your name, but what I'm going to do at the, end, at the end of Dr. Geshwin's presentation is allow plenty of time for people to have their questions answered. So um, if you have questions, feel free to ask them as they come up and put them in that chat box. Okay. So what I'm going to do without any further ado is uh, give the 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 uh, the uh, controls or show have Dr. Geshwin show his screen, um, which he should be doing in a minute. There you go. So um, without further ado, let's get it started. Dr. Geshwind, are you on? Oh, sorry, everybody. He may still, he may be muted. Let me, um, oh, hello. I think. Hi. I'm sorry, I think it's fixed now. Yeah, I couldn't unmute it. I think you must have muted me. Okay, I apologize. I no, think no, you're no, unmuted it's, okay. um, it's great. I just wanted, I was scared. Does anybody, uh, so now I'm assuming people can hear me, so I'll just get rolling. Yeah, set, go ahead, yeah. Great, okay. Well, I really, um, thanks for being on this webinar. Um, I'm hoping that this will spark a great discussion. Um, I think Alicia was very kind, and I thank you for that really nice introduction. We've been using molecular methods because, you know, neuropsychiatric diseases, disorders and human conditions that involve behavior and that aren't neurodegenerative like Alzheimer's don't have any obvious neuropathology. You can't look at the brain and see one area's lost volume or certain cells have died like you can in Parkinson's or in Alzheimer's disease. And so with disorders like autism and schizophrenia and others, there's no pathology that can be seen under a microscope. And so we reasoned a long time ago that perhaps we could uh, see things happening at a molecular, more microscopic level. And that's what I'm going to be talking about when I say understanding the brains of individuals with duplication 15Q and autism. So I'll just, I'll just go right into it. Let's see, I thought I would, okay. So here's a conflict of interest slide. I'm involved in this company, Ovid Therapeutics, that's trying to make uh, drugs for rare orphan disorders related to autism and uh, epilepsy, Axial, which is uh, involved in gut therapeutics, and Falcon Computing, which is a computer hardware company. So if we think about 2008, right, like it's about a decade ago, Brett Abrams, who was at that point a postdoctoral fellow in the lab, and I wrote a review about autism genetics very, very hopeful review, believing that the finding genes would open up new windows on our understanding of the causes and mechanisms of the disorder that would then help us develop better therapeutics or, or prevention if there are environmental factors. At that point, we, we only had a handful of genes. We had little understanding of mechanism of disease. 
major pharmaceutical companies in general were withdrawing from CNS research, central nervous system, including, you know, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia. It wasn't something specific to autism, but they didn't have a huge interest in autism at the time, although it was starting to grow. By 2016, this is a 2013 paper, just five years after that 2008, we were already able to take the genetic findings that had happened in five, six, eight years and begin to see that there were patterns there that were actually meaningful. So 2016, more than 200 candidate genes, much clearer mechanistic models, many advances, evidence that there was convergence and other, and, and I'll get to that in a bit, as well as disorder, different disorders that present differently, that have different histories, like schizophrenia presenting much later, actually have a share risk with autism. And there are major drug development efforts in autism ongoing, which we're very excited about. So what we're looking at now, and this is again from a, a review that we wrote in 2016, that Luis de la Torre-Bieta wrote when he was a postdoc in the lab, along with several other uh, students, is that you know we can look at, if you look all the way to the right of this figure, and I don't know if you can see my mouse, but we have kind of rare mutations that sit at the bottom, and they're about 10% of identified autism, including syndromes like Fragile X, uh, de novo mutations that are like Down syndrome. In other words, it's a genetic mutation the parents don't have it in their germline throughout their body. I, I, um, um, you know, they don't have it in their somatic cells. It's not throughout their body. But a mutation occurs in their germline that's then passed on to the child. So all of those kind of accounted for about 10%. Predicted common inherited about 50%, but there's about 40% unaccounted for. But among those, even that we know, we can begin to see that it's a collection of rare disorders so that, you know, we have 0.08% of patients with a CATNAL2 mutation, 0.08% with a POGZ mutation all the way on the left, 0.1% with ADNP, GRIN2B, etc. Nobody really having more than 1%. You know, we kind of estimate Fragile X is around 1%. It depends how the, how the sample is ascertained, anywhere from 1% to 3%. Um, of course, only in boys. And so, you know, this leads to, uh, you know, a lot of complications um, in that we predict that they're going to be, this is just the tip of the iceberg, we predict that maybe 15, 20% of autism is going to be caused by these type of rare mutations on the left, many of which still need to be found. The most recent papers that are in press have around 100 of them. So about 100 rare genes, and we estimate maybe 1,000. They're highly additive effects. And what we mean by that is that you may have a combination of rare events like a norexin deletion along with other types of mutations or even common genetic risk. A mutation is something just by definition that's rare and that, if, you know, um, that doesn't occur commonly in the population, that is, wouldn't occur more than 1%. But common variation, that is, variation that we share, that, you know, if there are 100 of, of us in the room, at least five of us have that, kind of accounts for the majority. But none accounts for more than 1% of cases, not one, there's not like a mutation that really, you know, is going to find a huge number. So you have 100 cases of autism, you likely have 100 different forms, at least and about a quarter of those are definable forms like these on the left where there's a very specific one major mutation that's causing most of the problem what and strong pleiotropy meaning that some of these uh, mutations cause a number of different disorders like intellectual disability epilepsy with or without autism some like norexin deletion equally predisposed to schizophrenia um, same thing with 22Q deletion. So we have this condition where we have a subset, at least a fifth, is a collection of rare disorders. And the rest of it is kind of a mix 
of rare and common mutations, all increasing liability. We think overall the liability to autism is highly genetic, 70 or 80 percent, but there is room for environment, about 20 percent. That's in the population. That would, but there are people who've, let's say, had birth trauma or hypoxia or or some kind of infection, um, like rubella. Those cases, it's probably, you know. 100% environmental, just like these cases on the left are likely 100% genetic. But overall in the population, we see about 70, 80% genetic heritability and about um, 20% non-heritable. So here we are, advances in genetics and genomics in just under 10 years have identified many genes, hundreds of them now involved in susceptibility for autism. These genes provide targets for mechanistic understanding and therapeutic development. However, these findings highlight extreme genetic heterogeneity, even in rare Mendelian disorders like 15Q duplication, which is probably the most specific and common kind of rare form of autism. What I mean by that is that in most of our cohorts, it's about 1%, and about 85 to 90% of the kids with that have, have an autism spectrum disorder. Whereas Fragile X might be 1% of autism cohorts, but only about 20% of kids with Fragile X have an autism spectrum disorder. One of the questions is, are we going to have to develop a specific treatment for each disorder? Will there be convergence in specific biological pathways, developmental stages, or brain circuitry? And that's been a major question we've been asking. So if we think about the stages here, we have genetic variation all the way on the left. DNA makes RNA, makes protein. That, you know, within a cell, the cells make connections in the nervous system called synapses, which are how they communicate with each other. Those, all those cells together form circuits that lead to behavior. And kind of, we have to connect all these levels if we're gonna understand autism. But genes also don't act independently. They don't act one at a time, they act in groups. And we can use what's called network biology to identify modules which is a synonymous with a group. It's a group of genes that are clustered together that have similar function. And that's what I'm showing here. Many of these modules, if I just took brain tissue from 100 people, the genes that clustered together would actually represent the main source of variation within that tissue, which is the cell type density. So because different people have different, slightly different proportions of neurons, and the glia and the different kinds of cells there, we can actually pull out those cell type specific modules or groups. The other point I wanna make is that most of what I'm talking about is we're measuring RNA. RNA is very proximal to the DNA. RNA is what is how DNA is read in the cell. The DNA produces RNA. And although every cell has the same DNA for the most part, it's what genes are turned on or off, which produces the RNA. And that's specific so that a liver cell is going to make very different RNAs than a brain cell. They might share about 40 or 50% of their RNAs, but most tissues have about 50% tissue specific RNA. So the genes are turned on and off in different cells to make different cell types. And they make different RNA and proteins. So we used measurements of RNA to ask, is there a shared pattern of RNA dysregulation in brain from subjects who had autism? And this is just a figure from the first paper published in 2011 shown here. And at the top, what it shows is a tree, which is clustering individuals, the red being autism, the black being controlled. And one can see that for the most part, not 100%, but about 75%, of the autism cases cluster together. And then they're clustering together because of the patterns of green and red. On the y-axis there, each, each line, each little thing is a gene. And we can see that there are groupings or clusters of genes that are red or genes that are green, red being up and green being down. So we see that two thirds of cases show upregulation of genes that are related to what's called neuroinflammation. These are genes that are markers for microglia and astrocytes, which are the main uh, supportive and inflammatory cells in the brain. 
and we see parallel downregulation of neuronal genes involved in vesicle transport and signaling related to neuronal activity. And when we actually ask where do genes with mutations or genetic variation that predisposes to autism sit, are they, is the causal part, the genetic causal part in the neuroinflammation or the neuronal part, it's in the neuronal part. What I mean by that is I'm looking at a postmortem brain and there are changes that I can see that are common to these autistic uh, individuals who had autism as, as you know, while they were alive. But I can't know, just like if I were looking at an image of their brain, whether the disease caused the changes or, or it was the fact that they had autism and their brain acted differently when it interacted with the environment. So I can't say that these gene expression changes on the right cause autism. I would never say that. I can say that it defines a molecular pathology. That is, it's a alterations in the brain that are associated with autism. But if I can find that genetic variants that we know cause autism, and whether it's having mutation in gene X or Y or Z, actually those genes are in a particular pathway it tells us there's a causal signal there, and the causal signal is in the neuronal synaptic signaling. And this is pretty remarkable because, as I told you, no single cause of autism accounts for more than 1%. In our second study, which I think I'm going to talk with you in about in a little bit, um, um, the uh, um, um, we, we had almost 100 cases in control, so it's a pretty large sample, and we still see that this, you know, that even the point being that if I have 50 autism cases, I likely have 50 different forms of autism because there's not one form of autism that, one genetic form. In other words, there's probably one fragile X, you know, one of, you know, whatever. Does that make sense, hopefully? And, you know, I'm happy to answer questions about that later. But that was kind of surprising that despite almost certainly harboring different genetic risk for the disorder, that at the level of the brain, that there was a kind of convergence in about two thirds of patients. That was really surprising, but it gave us some biological clues as to what was actually going on in the brain. I'm just going to skip the next few slides, which I realize, you know, for time, I'm just going to skip this because it's a little technical. But I want to just show this, is that this is what that module that's related to neuronal processes looks like. The genes in the middle are like hubs. They're the most, you know, think of it like an airline map. These are the hubs of that, you know, of this function. And several of these genes are like essential involved in splicing genes as well. And so um, we're able to show that this A2BP1 or RBFOX1, that hub right in the middle there, which is a splicing factor, we can see in the brain that this is down-regulated and the things that it's known to splice aren't spliced properly. So there's several things going on here. One of them is we have down-regulation and changes in genes. We also have changes in splicing as well. Just going to skip this again. So our we have a parsimonious data-driven model for autism. It's, it's fairly broad, but it's a start. We have this M12, which is the down-regulated altered neuronal gene expression module, and the increased microglia and astrocyte gene expression. The altered neuronal gene expression would cause synaptic dysfunction, and the increased microglia and astrocyte gene expression would cause what's called neuroinflammation. But it turns out that now we know that microglia and astrocytes are fundamental to the development of neuronal synapses, their ways of talking to each other. And so what's actually happening is we have genetic risk causing alternative splicing and altered neuronal gene expression causing synaptic dysfunction. And then a, probably a, a the microglia part is a kind of response to this that's probably trying to initially correct things, although we don't know that for sure, but that chronically is, 
is probably not a good thing, but we can't really know that yet. But th these two things come together. And so even though the microglia astrocyte isn't causing the initial disorder, there's mutations are mostly sitting in neuronal genes in the, that these microglia astrocyte gene expression changes come with it. And so it could be that chronically that just if we're able to affect, you know, target the microglia or astrocytes, we could actually lead to behavioral improvement. We don't know that, but we know that there's synaptic dysfunction and that's something that we'd like to fix. The advantages of this, it was an unbiased approach. The limitations was this was done in adult brain. It was a small sample and it was an incomplete transcriptome. This was done with microarrays at the time. So we've now finished this, you know, really with a much larger paper, 113 cases in controls. We have three brain regions, two cortical regions, the temporal region and the frontal cortex. Brodmann's area nine is frontal, BA4142, temporal, and cerebellum. To make a long story short, we find almost no changes in the cerebellum that are really significant. Most of the ongoing stuff is really in the cerebral cortex. And that's just details. I want to just show something here that if we look at the what we call the first principle component, this is just the major effect of gene expression. It's, we can show here very clearly it's not related to confounding factors like seizures or medication or post-mortem interval or brain weight or sex that much. It's diagnosis is really driving this. That's just, just to make a point. So again, our model is that we have a robust gene expression pattern shared by more than two thirds of the cases of autism. We are now able to use RNA sequencing and look at long, you know, all these new species like long non-coding RNA, microRNA, et cetera. And what I'm gonna show you is that the pattern that we see in autism, idiopathic autism, is also shared in autism in the eight cases that we had from patients with duplication 15Q. And this work was led by four very talented people in my lab. It was led by Neil Parikshak, who's now a neurology resident at UCSF. Vivek Swarup is now a professor at UC Irvine. And Emily Wu is, uh, is working here. Um, actually, her husband, Weiji Hong, and her run a lab together. So I'm going to show you the 15Q duplication. These are the brains that we got from the um, Autism Brain Bank. Um, nine brains in total, but uh, all the RNA wasn't good from all of them, so we couldn't use them. But this is just showing the, the, uh, what, what breakpoints were included. All include breakpoint one, two. Uh, most of them go from one, you know, one to four, and a few of them include the, the most distal. I'm just going to show, again, four copies in breakpoint one to four, three copies in breakpoint four to five at most. So what we see, what we're now looking at is I'm showing the breakpoints on the bottom, all the genes that are in this region. And then what's the Y, that's on the X axis. On the Y axis, is the log of the log base two of the fold change. So that line at zero means no, no change versus control. Idiopathic autism is in red. That would be the average expression of that gene across our approximately 50 idiopathic autism samples. And the blue is showing the 15Q duplication. And those that have stars are statistically significant at a very stringent statistical threshold, a false discovery rate of 0.05. So what you can see is that across this region and probably parallel to the number of copies, there is a substantial increase in expression for most genes. That's around twofold, between 1.5 and twofold, which is what we'd expect because you have an extra copy. There are some genes that actually look like they might be down, um, which is interesting and unexpected, but that's just a couple. 
for the most part, they're up. So what it's telling us is that idiopathic autism does not have striking dysregulation of genes across this region. 15Q dupe, as expected, does. In other words, where there is a duplication, those genes are usually overexpressed, including all the GABA receptors, but you know, um, and, and a number of other genes. UBE3A is not overexpressed. Um, is, is overexpressed, it's right there. And then the GABA receptors are here. I don't know if you can see my, my uh, pointer, but I'm trying to point to them. So, so this is, so, so despite having big differences in the kind of genetic lesion that's going on, in other words, these genes being overexpressed, when we look at, at 15Q duplication, what I'm showing here is a cluster gram again the blue are the 15Q duplication and the black on the top are the controls. We can see all the 15Q dupe samples cluster together, whether they're from frontal lobe in the front or temporal lobe and of the cerebral cortex. And there's a group of down-regulated in blue and up-regulated in red genes. And we look at these genes, we can see that in this graph, what I've plotted is 15Q versus control versus idiopathic autism versus control on the, on the x-axis. And there's a very high correlation. The R-square is 0.65. It's very significant. So in other words, when a gene goes up in autism, it's up in 15Q dupe and down, et cetera, vast majority of the time. But the slope is 3, which means that the changes are greater in the 15Q duplication than in autism. So it's a more homogeneous, more clear cut with stronger changes of the same genes. Same process, just more obvious in the 15Q. And some of that is likely because the autism, idiopathic autism is very heterogeneous and includes about a third of the patients who actually don't have the pattern. And now I'm showing splicing, which is another way that genes get put together. They can either be up or down, but they can also be abnormally spliced. And that's also shared. So in other words, the molecular pathology based on the RNA that we see in the brain in 15Q duplication and in autism is, is very, very similar. And this is looking at something called long non-coding RNAs. So again, everything we see. And so again, I can plot this by plotting the first principal component of differential gene expression. And we can see that there's this gradient of most dysregulation in 15Q, higher being most. If we have the ADIR confirmed post-mortem autism cases, they're more likely to be even higher. The, the ASD that's supported by records, but where there wasn't an ADI done and then controls. So there's gradient of severity that makes total sense. So what I'm going to conclude from this is that autism is heterogeneous, it's complex. We can capitalize on genetic findings and these systems biology approaches, all of which I have not shared with you, but we can identify potential common molecular pathways. And what I'm showing you here is that in the postmortem brain, it looks like there's a kind of common biological process in, in the majority, but not all cases of autism, and certainly in, in all of 15Q. So what we see tells us that there's disruption of local neuronal signaling, what we call local circuits, containing excitatory and inhibitory cell types, and an upregulation of the microglia and astrocytes. And it's even more pronounced in this monogenic form of autism called 15Q duplication. Many of these changes overlap with, with genes that are changed when, when neurons fire fast, when there's a lot of firing, which includes vesicle recycling because the neurotransmitters have to be moved up and down and other, other factors related to neuronal firing and energetics. So it's, it's, it's a local circuit dysfunction. But one question is, where do we go from here? How do we develop therapeutics? And without getting into a lot of technical details, you know, we can kind of use these patterns that we see to try to find drugs to reverse these patterns. And we can also, you know, but we have to have models to test these in. 
So my thought about therapeutics has really changed over the last decades since we've been able to grow you know, tissues from patients based on stem cells. So on the right, what I'm showing is this is a article that Ricardo Dolmich and I wrote about six years ago now, I think, where you can look at the trade-offs in how we scientists in our laboratory and how pharmaceutical companies and biotech think about how are we going to develop a drug. To develop drugs, you need to be able to do assays in very high throughput. But animal models, like mouse models and, and other animals, usually aren't high throughput. Non-human primates are not high throughput. So they're at the bottom. There's human relevance as well. Like we don't know that everything we see in a mouse or a zebrafish is going to be relevant. Some things might be, some things might not be, and it behooves us to keep that, you know, knowledge, you know, um, uh, you know, you know, to to keep that, you know, really uh, front and center. So of course, a live human study has the best human relevance, and and um, but. We, we don't get high mechanistic insight usually because a live human study is either we ask somebody to do something or we can do a brain imaging study, but that doesn't show us what's happening at a molecular or cellular level. To do that, we need to be able to access the tissue from living human neurons. And so these, these induced pluripotent stem cells that are grown from patient fibroblasts now allow us to make you can take a fibroblast, a skin cell, we reprogram it. We can make any tissue or cell in the body. We now use it to make neuronal progenitors and we're growing like little mini brains in a dish. And this is the first paper to do this in autism that I was involved with, with Ricardo Dolmetsch, uh, led by Sergio Pasca, who at the time was a postdoc in his lab, where we used iPSC-derived neurons to model a very specific form of autism, Timothy syndrome. And so these, uh, these uh, induced pluripotent stem cells and primary human stem cells, even though they're in vitro in a dish, we're now able to kind of build tissues with them. And although it's not a human brain or a living human, it allows us to explore what the effect of having a particular mutation is on the cell composition and on the functioning of that organoid. And so one of the things that we've been working on now is growing these is taking high penetrant risk loci like mutations in norexin, this other gene, CNTNAP2, ARID1B, duplication 15Q, making iPSCs, growing them into these human forebrain spheroids, which mimic many things that we see in vivo. So we can actually mimic a lot of normal neurodevelopment in a dish and look across cellular, molecular, anatomic structure and physiologic. So we can look at the composition of the organoids, the cell. <coughs> Has that changed? Does the mutation alter excitatory inhibitory imbalance by changing the number of inhibitory neurons? And then we can look at the physiology and ask, does it change the physiologic properties? And we can also do molecular profiling, like I showed you from the brain, and ask, are we seeing some of the same changes that we see in the postmortem brain? <laughs> and so this tissue that we can grow in a dish from patient-derived neurons actually provides a bridge between the post-mortem studies that I've been showing you and our, our, our need to have a functional model that we can have in a dish, where now if I have a particular drug that I've screened, I can ask, does it reverse in the dish what I've seen with the mutation? Another thing we can ask is, if I take 10 penetrant risk loci, do they converge at any point? Just like in the postmortem brain, we saw that two-thirds of cases converged and 15Q duplication showed this convergence of alterations in neuronal signaling in glia. Do we see that at the cellular level, at the molecular level, at the structural or anatomic level? That's something we could see under a microscope or something that we could see with an electrode, the actual physiology and firing of the brain cells. 
and we use, uh, you know, um, so um, we're also doing some work in rats with these same mutations to see if what we're actually able to see in the dish can be mimicked in the rat or vice versa. And we use, yeah, um, so, so that's kind of like the most crazy kind of far out. And in fact, when this grant was reviewed at NIH, I was told by somebody um, just in general, they can't tell me anything specifically, that the word science fiction was brought up several times. But the point is, we're at a, we're at a this is not fiction, this is science, and this is the future, but the future's happening now. And so we're really excited about this work. And so I'm going to kind of end it there. And I just wanted to bring up three points. You know, what could you do to help research if you want to? You can participate in research in ways that you and your family members are comfortable with, whatever that is. It's always helpful. There, there are people, especially in 15Q, who you know, my colleague Shafali Jeste here and Paimon Golshani are studying. Paimon studying mouse models. Shafali has been looking for biomarkers in patients. But the field also needs families to sign up for Autism BrainNet, um, which is a very difficult conversation to have. And I know I have three kids, and so um, I understand all of the sensitivities around that. But the fact that we had these postmortem brains has been transformative for the field in, in, in its understanding, in, not only in this disorder, but we've been able to show this across many psychiatric disorders, that there actually is a pathology. You just can't see it under a microscope. It's at the molecular level. But we need to understand that much better. We need to get much more granular with it. Right now, we're at a very gross level. We need to look across many brain regions. We need to look at the single cell level. There are all kinds of methods that haven't been applied yet, and that when the tissue is available, can be applied. So that's why there's a need for people to sign up for that. And um, we, you know, in our research project that I just showed you, in the field in general, there are very, there are no really serious public resources where we can make neural stem cells from iPSCs from patients with 15Q duplication. They're very, very few. The ones we've looked at don't differentiate that well. And so we need to make about five or 10 at least more not only for our own research, but for the field to bring people in so that they can actually, you know, so that this becomes not just studied by a handful of three or four labs, but this becomes, a, you know, one of the monogenic conditions that everybody studying autism is studying, which is what we want here. So, so we need skin biopsies from which we can make neural stem cells. And I'm hoping that some of my colleagues from Stanford, and there will be people from UCLA, will be at the 15Q2 meeting that's in a week or so, where if you're interested in this, you can kind of sign up for it. We can figure figure out. They may even be able to do it there. I'm not sure yet. I'm going to talk with them this week, but at least they could meet with you and figure out what could be done if you were interested in participating. So I'm just going to leave it at that and say my acknowledgments. I mentioned most of these people as we went along. I have a big lab, and most important to me, and even though the goal of what I do in my lab is to use genetics and neurobiology in the service of understanding autism and other brain disorders so that we can develop therapeutics, one of the reasons I'm not at a drug company at this point, in, you know, which is because I believe that's a very powerful way to do this at these, uh, these biotech and pharmaceutical companies that are essential to do this, is that I really enjoy training people. And, and part of my greatest joy is having amazing trainees who go off and then populate the field, like Neil Parichak, Mike Gandalf, Vivek Swarup, Grant Belgard, Jason Stein. Jason and Jung, by the way, were two postdocs in my lab. And, and, and they finished in the lab three years apart. And they both ended up in a fantastic, one is in genetics and the other in neurobiology at UNC Chapel Hill. And so they're and they're strongly connected to the autism center that Joe Piven runs there. So again, um, that's exciting. Um, and Luis de la Torre-Biedis started his own lab as well, Mike Gandel, and, and the others are on their way. And then I have collaborators at other places, uh, Ben Blanco and Sean Pravakar um, with the, um, um, our, our work in integrating gene expression. 
Steve Horvath and Giovanni Coppola have been longstanding statistical and database collaborators and were funded by Safari and the Autism Genetic Resource Exchange, which is now a program of Autism Speaks, was started when it was Cure Autism Now. This is my little network of me and people in the lab. They took a funny picture of me where I ha I'm holding my chin and everybody took a picture of themselves holding their chin. So I find that I like it. Maybe that's because I'm vain. But um, and also we're involved in some of these very large scale projects that are developing maps of gene expression and how genetic variation plays out in the brain. And these kind of maps are essential to kind of just like any map is necessary if you're going to start navigating a territory. Without the map, we couldn't do it well. So um, thanks for your attention, and I'm ready for questions. Sorry well, Dr. Uh, if I took too long. Oh, no, not at all. And thank you so much. Um, and thank you for mentioning signing up for the Autism Brain Net. I realize this is a difficult conversation, but really, when um, the BrainNet wants you to sign up for, you know, to register, you're not registering to actually donate. You're actually really registering for um, more information. And so we have a quarterly newsletter that goes out, um, and it it really kind of describes some of the research in the area. Uh, we profile researchers. Uh, we we kind of try to explain in more simple terms some of the new scientific findings and put them into context. And so when you sign up for Autism Brain Net, don't feel like you're actually making an obligation. We really just want you guys to understand how important it is rather than making a full-time commitment right away. So thank you for mentioning that. Uh, we did get a lot of questions. So I am going to just um, you know kind of call them out. Um, so there was one question about the brain regions that were affected in DUPE15Q. Um, and what, which ones did you study? And you mentioned the cerebellum. There really wasn't a whole lot of changes, but what other ones did you study that you did see changes in? Yeah, the changes we saw, we studied temporal lobe, frontal lobe, and cerebellum, and we really just saw the change, you know, the primary changes, the strong changes are in, uh, are in the cerebral cortical regions, frontal lobe and temporal lobe, and that's all we've looked at at this point. Um, we started to look across more brain regions, but that's still ongoing. It's a very difficult study. It's been taking years. The, um, and yes, I mean, that's the other thing is that a lot of this research is dependent on donated tissue. So, and donated brain tissue that gets spread out across multiple investigators. So, um, yeah. you know, I know you can't look at everyone. Um, there was another question about the um, IPSCs. So, when the brains in a dish are made, do they model the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of a drug like, um, no, such as the half-life protein? Okay. Yeah, not so, at all. Yeah, so like we're not, what we're basically looking at is what we know so far about the brain, you know, the, and I call it brain in a dish. It's a, it's a terrible name because it's not, but it's brain, you know, it's tissue, it's neuronal tissue. And um, we've been able to show that we can model neurodevelopment up to kind of early postnatal ages for the first time, that, that's unpublished. And we can show that using a lot of genomic methods to show that what we see in terms of the cell types and gene expression matches what happens in vivo during development. That's where those maps of normal development are so important. So we can see all of that. We get a lot of physiology, we get a lot of structure that's seen in the brain, um, and we get the right genes expressed so um, our hope is that we can then identify, let's say, a change in a firing pattern or some synaptic change, and we can test the drugs on that and show that there's a change, you know, that the drug actually works before it's given to a human. Of course, it would be have to given, you'd have to do tox studies in other animals, and when you're studying them in, in the animals, you can look at the pharmacodynamics and all of that stuff. So that kind of stuff is done in vivo. In animals. We have another question. Um, this is a mom that has identical twin daughters with DUPE15Q, but they are also mosaic. She's wondering if there's been any studies looking at differences in the brain of those that are mosaic versus non-mosaic. No, no, that's no. And yeah, 
Okay. Not at all. That's a you know from a scientific standpoint, absolutely, uh, you know, very intriguing question, right? You'd expect, um, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to have a chance to talk with her at some point. Just I'm just you know from my own curiosity and hear her story about her, her kids and what they're like because. Um, you know, mosaicism usually is less, usually, not all the time, though, is is usually less less severe, and, and that's probably related to the fact that there are different regions that are differentially affected. So the person that asked that question, please feel free to reach out to Dr. Geshwind or me, and I'll put you in touch with Dr. Geshwind. I don't want to... Yeah, yeah, or if, if you end up going to the 15Q Duke meeting and run into Dr. Geste, Mm -hmm. And anybody from UCLA, you can just give them your addresses and stuff, and we can talk about it, if, if you're interested. I, I, I don't want to be uh, imposing. We had another question about SUDEP. So SUDEP, or sudden infant death from epilepsy, is common in DUPE15Q. Um, is there any genetic mechanistic insight so far? Um, have you been, are, is this question being studied by the BrainNet? I'm sorry, somebody knocked on my door. Could you? Um... Oh, no, that's totally fine. So, um, as you know, SUDEP or sun, sudden unexplained yep. death from epilepsy is common in DUPE15Q. Um, have you been able to look at any genetic mechanistic insight, uh, perhaps, you know, looking at SUDEP versus non SUDEP? It's a great question. In fact, we were. Yeah, um, not all the cases that we have had epilepsy. Which is interesting, yeah. Um, or reported epilepsy, so um, or like observed seizures. So uh, I, I I have the, I can't recall the numbers because you know it's eight or nine cases, so it's it's not that many. Um, but we don't have any we don't get any specific insight into that from this um, you know from this molecular study. Yeah, which is too bad, but it, it, it doesn't tell us much about that. You know, in fact, the brains of these kids with 15Q dupe or an adult, some of them, um, they, um, one of the reasons why I believe that this condition is, I mean, why should we have eight 15Q dupe brains and basically, you know, not eight fragile X and not, you know, the others? And I think they're overrepresented, probably because of sudden death. And whether it's cardiac or or nervous system, I think, uh, from my perspective, is still an unanswered question. I I don't think there's evidence of kind of cardiac dysfunction in these kids, though. So it's probably central nervous system. But but somebody can correct me. No, that's fair enough. And. Um... We have a, a couple other people asking a similar question, which I think is almost a million dollar question, um, which is how or how can you or have you been able to map the molecular changes that you see in the brain to certain behaviors? Um, in other words, can you characterize the quote unquote flavors of autism through what you found in um through the neuropathology or even the, the no, in fact, genetic in fact, transcription. It's almost the other way around. What we see is despite huge individual variability in in symptoms, in in, in you know, these are individuals, right? Each person's different. That you know, and, and even if you just look at the autism dimensions, they can be vast, you know, quite different. Um, despite that, we're seeing kind of similar, similar changes in the brain. Uh, probably with a gradient of severity, probably I would say there's a gradient there. More severe cases with the most severe dysfunction probably have the most severe disruption, but we're seeing this kind of convergence. Mm -hmm. so I think we're looking, um, yeah, so we've not, I don't think we have the power yeah. to find many individual subtypes, um, but it's, to me it's remarkable and it was very unexpected when we first saw this in 2011, um, to, to find this much convergence. 
So is there, I know that there's not, you know, a huge number of, of brains to look at, but um, another question was how broad of the range in cognitive function was there? And was it related to any of the changes you saw? My sense is that it probably is somewhat. Um, this isn't just a straight intellectual disability pattern, though. Mm -hmm. um, we see very similar things happening in schizophrenia and bipolar on the neuronal side. Um, so, um, but there's, you know, I think if we look at the, if we just think of social, my sense would be social adaptive functioning as a kind of measure of severity that, that it doesn't follow a straight line, but there is a relationship there. So the very, very severe are those people who are probably the least independent and the few kid and the few that adults who had a, who were able to lead independent lives and stuff have mm -hmm. much less severe patterns. We have one last question. I know we have only a few minutes left. Um, uh, I actually have a question if we have time too. Um, so someone had asked, um, is there an imbalance of excitatory versus inhibitory uh, function in the brains of people with DOOP15Q? I think so. Um, I, just like in autism, exactly what that is and how it ends up there, I think is gonna vary from different case to case. Not, you know, 15Q being, being a case, um, but, um, but some of the most down-regulated genes turned down are genes that are expressed in interneurons, which are inhibitory neurons, and these are very activity-dependent changes, so with low activity, they would go down, and so my sense is there really has been an activity change in the brain, and more so in inhibit, but it could be a compensatory thing as well. It could be that there are alterations in excitatory neurons, and you know they're down, and so the inhibitory neurons go down to kind of try to balance things. You know that like we don't know its exact nature, but the I think it's it's staring us in the face at this point. So I think that there is something there. Um, exactly what it is still needs to be defined better because changes in inhibitory, excitatory balance could mean a lot of things. It's a very broad term. It's essentially all the brain does in a way. So, so we need to get more granular. And that's why once we have these organoids from more than, you know, I'd like to have, you know, six, seven, ten patients with 15Q duplication and maybe even different forms that we could study the development, the early development, and we could see, you know, that's going to give us the essential clue as to what the kind of primary first changes are and how those lead to changes in excitation, inhibition, balance, and what that actually means at a circuit level. I think that would be very helpful for developing treatments. So one last question for me, because I know that you've gotten such a strong signal from that um, immune cluster. Is do you mind um, explaining? There was, you know, there have been theories that changes in the immune system are the trigger to autism. Uh, the model that you showed actually kind of kind of suggested that um, it's the synaptic genes that are at the causal level for autism and it's those changes in the brain as a result that trigger the immune system. Can you just briefly explain that a little bit more? Yes. Yeah, there's no, yeah. So these are called neural immune because the genes are expressed in on microglia and astrocytes, which are these neural cells, but many of the genes were first discovered as being part of the immune system. So what they are, what the immune system does that's very much like the nervous system, what's happening here is cell-cell interaction and cell recognition. It's supposed to recognize who's, who's a friend, who's a foe, you know, what do I do? Should I activate? Should I, should I kill this bacteria or not, or this virus? And so, in the nervous system, the nervous system has to do similar things. 
Should I connect with this cell? Should I have more synapses or less synapses and all of that? And the glia are shaping that. And so it really, even though it's called immune, in this particular case, the driver isn't the immune signal at all. It's all the mutation, you know, you know if you look now, if we looked at the 100 mutations that have been identified, the vast majority of them are very enriched in specific forms of cortical neurons. You know, so they're causing a primary deficit during the birth of those neurons and their formation that then lasts throughout the lifetime. Well, thank you. I know we've gone over. I just want to thank you again, Dr. Geshwin, for sharing not just your research, but your time with everyone. We had at one, um, you know, people have had to kind of jump off recently, but there were over 45 people who were on the webinar. Thank you all for joining. Um, if you're going to be at the Duke 15Q meeting, I will be there too in Houston next week. So I hope um, to meet you and to be able to talk to you more. Um, and Vanessa is also on the webinar. If there's anyone in the Duke 15Q community that would like to reach out to Dr. Geshwin, you can uh, connect through her. So you guys all know her email address. So thank you guys so much. Also, the webinar will be, uh, it has been recorded and it will be posted both on the Duke 15Q website and the Autism Brain Net website. So thank you guys again. Um, we really appreciate it and I hope this was helpful. And thanks again to Dr. Geshwin. Yeah, thank you guys. If anybody thank wants to contact me, please do. Okay, Take care. thank you. Bye-bye.